Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Jeff Booth is a visionary leader who has lived at the forefront of technology change for more than 20 years. He is the best-selling author of his book, The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation? is key to an abundant future. In his book, Jeff offers his provocative thesis about the current state of our global economies and what must happen to enable a brighter future. He has been featured by many media outlets, including Forbes, TechCrunch, Inc.com, The Globe and Mail, BNN, Bloomberg, Time, and The Wall Street Journal. In 2015, he was named BC Technology Industry Association's Person of the Year. And in 2016, Goldman Sachs named him among its 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs. He is a founding partner of Otis Labs, co-founder of AddyInvest.com and Knock Knock, and serves on the board of Terramera, Cubic Farms, Lamazoo, Synthium, and the Richmond Hospital Foundation, as well as numerous other advisory boards. He has been a Young President's Organization member since 2004 and contributes time as a founding fellow on the Creative Destruction Lab. I consider his book an absolute must-read for anyone, especially entrepreneurs and business owners, as we go through these very, very uh, remarkable times. And with all of that, Let's get this show on the road. Jeff Booth, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Sincerely excited about having you on the show and talking about your book, The Price of Tomorrow. But I know that you're far deeper than all of that. And what I really want to get to is uh, for listeners who have not had the opportunity to read your book or 
come across you with all the speaking that you're doing these days, which is a lot. You're also very active on Twitter. So give me a little background if somebody says to you, Jeff, what do you do? What's the answer to that question these days? So what I would say to that question is I'm a technology entrepreneur who who tries to use technology to to find ways to make the world a better place. That would be the the small box, or if I said that you put yourself into, why I actually don't like the question specifically mm-hmm. is, um, and everybody asks, and 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 they do it, um, and people jump into a label, and that label effectively defines who they are to everybody else, and it misses a whole bunch of who they really are because I'm, it's way broader. And I'm a technology author, uh, entrepreneur, or or author, or because if you saw my friend group and just the amazing kind of group around around me, they wouldn't care about any of that stuff, mm-hmm. and, they, and neither do I. Mm-hmm. So, so, so those labels that define us mm-hmm. also divide us, and 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 that's a really important thing to to recognize today. Where, where the world's going, because everybody wants to be, everybody's trying to define somebody else by a narrow label. And what they're missing is a greater picture of how we're mostly the same. You know, I, of course, 100% agree with that statement and that thought process that I don't even want to call it a, a philosophy, but I understand really all of that, you know, but when we get into a conversation with somebody like yourself who's got such a journey that you've been on. I, if I was going to label Jeff Booth, uh, you know, if I'm just saying this and I'm just, cause it's an interesting conversation, I think is I would really just say leader and with some real specialization in what's happening in a global economy, what's happening in the world today. But to your point, you know, you've got friends that you don't talk about any of that shit. You talk about being a dad and a husband and you talk about, you know, going skiing or or fishing or whatever you might do. So it is an interesting box that we find ourselves placing people in unintentionally for the most part. But when you pull back and step back from it, I, I think you make a very, very good point. But where do we go with that type of a conversation, you know, Jeff, from your perspective, uh, especially in a world today where there's so much divisiveness, so much polarity, so many things unfolding right before our very eyes in terms of labeling. So where do we go with this? So why don't we start with me because that's where you started with mm-hmm. and then we'll just move, uh, move that up. Mm-hmm. So what I realized through the journey is we're ever changing mm-hmm. or we're not. There's a reflection of, so my reality, what my personal reality looks like could look very different than somebody else's reality from my own belief set. Mm-hmm. And that was a really hard thing for me to even see because I, in building my company um, or building multiple companies, at first I thought it was the world conspiring against me. Mm-hmm. And so most of most of the big breakthroughs in my life actually came to from a realization that it was me conspiring against the world, right? And it was something that that something was always there, but I was pushing it away. And it was a breakthrough that 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 allowed me to uh, to build businesses, see opportunities totally different than other people. But that was an internal that was an internal uh, thing. And what, so, so when somebody else says a leader, I, I, what I think happens is you investigate truths that you thought you get better or don't 
And when you're vulnerable and you tell the world that you made just as many mistakes <laughs> to get mm -hmm. to where you are, mm -hmm. it shows up as leadership because mm -hmm. it's authentic. Yes. Um, so, so I think, so I think at, through that path of trying to build a business and realizing the business builds me and all the mistakes you, you, you make and doing that again, you see a lot of uh, error correction that you thought the world looked like. And it looks like that because of your thoughts. And so, so probably that is, that, that's, per, that's my personal journey. Mm -hmm. And then if you expand that out to a whole bunch of what that means for, for how I can see others through their thoughts, beliefs, their, what, what they believe is true and how that would divide them. And how, if you have a, have a system, like we've talked about this and um, on your other network and everything else, but when you have a system problem where technology is reducing prices and reducing labor and you have a, and you have a monetary policy that has to push prices up against that or the entire market fails, you can imagine that creating chaos, a whole bunch of chaos in the world where people are confused about what's going on. And that confusion and their right to believe in what they believe in and not question it at a first principles is actually what's tearing apart society. Yeah. I mean, there's so much just in that conversation to unpack. And when you look at what's happening in the world today, and to your point, when we consider the belief systems, the filters that the population and, you know, is looking through, we all have those filters that we see the world through. What I'm hearing kind of in the background is that just through maturity and business and kind of self-reflection, you've come to understand, like many entrepreneurs do, is that to your point, you're building the business, but the, it's what you're going through is building you. It's actually defining who you are as a person, how you start to see the world, how you shift, where you can see yourself being a contribution. And that evolution of making mistakes, uh, bumping up against challenges, getting through those challenges, meeting people. So that's all to say that, you know, where we are, where I see you today, and I'll use the term leadership, but you are very, uh, you're trying to get a message to the world to, and technology shrunk the world. So you get to get that message out there in a much bigger way, which is not only what's happening economically, but what's happening perhaps culturally or what's happening from a societal perspective and a view of the world. And, and so I don't know where to enter that conversation, but, you know, when I go back to your book, you, you know, you shared with us uh, recently on stage at the Real Estate Investment Network that you felt compelled to write the book. It wasn't like it was an idea. I'll write a book. It was like, no, I need to write this book. Is, I don't know if I'm doing that justice, that statement, but do you want to, let's, let's kind of poke around in that a little bit, Jeff. Sure. You're right. That is not, I didn't want to write this book for 10 years. I'd been putting off writing this book and talking about it, but realizing how systems feedback on it themselves and get worse and worse and worse for all people in the system and realizing that the system couldn't change itself from within. I, I had to write this book because I, I looked forward on the on the natural impact of that. And I and and if society is going through a cha phase change to a new system, what would that mean for society going through that phase change? And would they see what was happening or would they divide? And um, and, and so I looked I looked at what was happening and I said, my kids are going to grow up in this world mm -hmm. and there is a better path. 
Um, and probably similar to, and, and why maybe I saw that path is similar to all entrepreneurs. What you're, what you're trying to do is find a better path that, that is an unknown path that most people don't see. And so I had to investigate that from a first principles um, idea and say, what could this look like? Here's the natural, here's what it will look like, like given current circumstances. Here's what people don't see, connecting all of these islands of misinformation together and everybody in their own camp that seems to be moving further and further away. They're all connected by one thing, and they're connected by the monetary unit connecting it all. Mm. So if you manipulate a monetary unit to push prices up unnaturally against the free market, what it really does is it steals from some people and grants it to others. And I wish I didn't have to say that, mm -hmm. but, 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 it, but it is true. So inflation is a theft that nobody votes for. Mm -hmm. and, and that inflation causes it so so the wealthier get richer uh, richer if you have assets real estate or other they keep going up in price mm -hmm. um, and real wages go down and for a while because real wages go down you actually gain more jobs because the real wages going down means the technology doesn't have to um, go into them faster because people are working for slave wage wages. Mm -hmm. But as wages creep up, technology has to move in there faster. So you cause a feedback loop from companies trying to remove labor faster. And if they don't do that, the company moves to be insolvent because on the other side of that labor equation, we're all purchasers. Mm -hmm. We're all the same equation, mm -hmm. right? So, so we think that labor can go up forever, but we want to purchase things that go down in price. And so when you have a, a system problem that, and, and at the base layer of a system that relies on theft, then you can imagine what will happen to society. And when I say relies on theft, I hate to use that word, but it is true, mm -hmm. right? It's nobody votes for more inflation. Um, most people don't realize that um, if taxes went up to 100%, you couldn't pay back the debt. So it has to be paid back through inflation. That stealth tax that nobody votes for destroys society and, there, and has predictable uh, consequences. That leaves an uneasy feeling, mm -hmm. right? That, that system has to rely on theft. And what would a system that relies on, so it, we, we all think we live in a free market, right? And there's a whole bunch of entrepreneurs like me that, that believed I, we lived in a free market. I think the, the key there, just interject, believed we did. At, at some point we did. That has morphed and changed. Exactly. But, but when, you, when you don't have a free market, when money is manipulated, the economic single, signal under everything else is manipulated, then nothing is free. Mm -hmm. that believes in and and so when when that happens as well when both politicians on both sides of the aisle don't tell you that and divide people and say this person wants lower taxes this person wants higher taxes this person wants to but they don't tell most of the it, most of the money is coming from a stealth tax that neither one of them is going to change mm -hmm. it, what you start to ask yourself could a democracy survive based on a fraud um, could any democracy uh, survive based on uh, based on based on a lie? Could a free market survive? Could a democracy survive? And what must that look like to if the if the lie had to expand? What would it have to if if you had to steal more money? 
as technology went the other way. Mm-hmm. And what would happen naturally is you'd have to control more of the message. That's what's unfolding in Canada. But, but it's unfolding but it's, everywhere. It's fo- oh, 100%. I get that. And there's actually, there's precedent for this in other countries, you know, from over the years. Where do you see, you know, I know that within your own view of the world and what you write about is that technology is being deflationary in an economy that's, and it's being, you know, there's a kind of a push-pull thing because in the meantime, we're running a huge deficit, lots of debt, lots of money printing and increasing consumerism, but low productivity. And technology is also bringing the price of things down. It just hasn't caught up to us because, to your point, of the inflationary aspect of what's happening. Is, is, am I being accurate in some form of that statement? Nobody can see the free market right. because it's obfuscated by the money printing. Mm-hmm. And if you remove the money printing, you would have a deflationary depression, which would the entire everything banks hospitals all of the food shelves everything is built on top of a credit pay system Mm -hmm. and if you allow that to collapse everything collapses and into that void people would vote for dictatorship to be able to save them from a cycle that was that was they would blame the free market Mm -hmm. when the free market actually had nothing to do with it it what, what it was is a manipulated market got worse and worse and worse. So there's a whole bunch of people that would look at capitalism or look at left-right divides and be and and be in their camp and mm-hmm. be completely unaware that it's something way over here that's deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is no fix from either camp. And so when I say all of these islands of information are connected to a different signal, um, they're all connected to because because we don't want more money. We want more time we want what we believe the money will buy us mm-hmm. right so it's not more money that uh, that we want and so when 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 you distort money when you you distort time as a byproduct mm-hmm. and when you just when you have misinformation in money you must have misinformation everywhere in society and people get confused and be, because they've never experienced to kind of, what is money in the first place it's just a trade of your time what i would work today to trade my to trade my time for money so I can spend that time somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you, uh, so when you do that and you say, so I can go on a vacation, but then somebody presses a button and destroys your money and gives it to somebody else or through an ask through their, through their assets going up and you can't go on that vacation. You just spent that time and lost your time. Mm-hmm. And society, as you as you drive that, more and more people fall into poverty. Middle class and poor are racing harder and harder and harder to keep up to something that's being manipulated further and further away from them. And and you can't build walls high enough in a society to to keep the uh, keep those people from rising up against the rich. And so um, so and it's all caused by because it's not a free market. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look at the money printing that's been going on, I, I think the recent number is globally we've hit over three hundred trillion dollars in yeah, three hundred and three trillion dollars. Three hundred and three trillion dollars. Yet, from a GDP or productivity point of view, we've only gained—I don't know what the number is—but it's it's insignificant. <laughs> you know, it's not relative. You would—it's not even close to being relative to how much money printing has been going on and, and trying to drive any kind of productivity or you know GDP overall. 
Yeah. And, and, and again, in, in the, in my thesis, this was all predicted mm-hmm. because you had to keep on doing it because mm-hmm. once you're trapped, remember, so in the last 20 years before COVID, there was $185 trillion of, uh, of stimulus mm-hmm. to drive $46 trillion of economic growth. Globally. Yeah. Now in that number, you'd have to ask yourself, okay, as a, as a person, just as a, as an individual person, could you, borrow four times as much as your total growth each year. So if you, uh, and keep and keep doing that every, uh, and keep doing that at an ever increasing rate. And so what you see is eventually that breaks. Mm-hmm. And and so now every asset that somebody purchases in the last 20 years before COVID, would that have gone up without $185 trillion of stimulus? And the answer is simply no. But people, but people believe prices of housing always go up and they don't ask themselves, would it have gone up if my money wasn't being manipulated or, or further that manipulation has a cost to somebody else. I'm the winner of it, but somebody else is a loser. What will they do when the board game's rigged? Will they kick over the board game? Will they rise up? What will they do? Because the consequences, the divide of society is caused by the same thing not realizing that it's really quite simple underneath the whole thing. But the, is it really simple? I, you know, as I'm, as I've read so much and I follow, you know, a ton of economic research as part of what we do, having conversations with people like yourself or reading books like you've written, I don't find it that simple. Like, you know, may, I'm not the, the sharpest knife in the drawer. There's no doubt about it, but I mean, it is a complex subject. And, you know, when I, I mean, it's only been, I think, really in the probably the past couple of years that the general population has even begun to understand fiat currency. Nobody even used the term fiat in the past. All of a sudden, you know, people are going, oh, oh, well, geez, maybe I should pay attention to this. So how do we, I don't want to say how do we, but I mean, I find it difficult and the easy manipulation by governments, and I'm not going one one, you know, I don't give a shit about the the party. What I'm saying, government in general has been manipulating the dollars and cents of things based on the fact that people just don't understand. And and they're not yeah. even, they don't even know the questions to ask. So you have to get to first principles mm-hmm. um, to be able to understand. And then it becomes simple. Mm-hmm. And it, for anybody that's not listening, uh, that's listening to this, that doesn't understand first principles, just look up first principles yeah. and, and go deep onto first principles. What is true for sure? Mm-hmm. Right. There's no, so is technology deflationary? Does technology remove labor and give us more for less? Is that true? I, I believe that's true. And so you could question that that isn't true. Yeah, in, but, uh, in the short, to, in technology, my experience of technology is in the short term it's more expensive, but in the long term, it always it it seems to always become less expensive. And again, what that would do is because because remember we're both sides of this market. Yeah, we're and and but we think we're different sides. We want our labor price to always go up, but mm. we want everything we buy to go down. Right. So because we can't see that, and we separate those things. It's easy to separate us, but we're one side. We're the same on, uh, 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 we're one side of that coin. So, so when I, when I create a technology company, then what I do with that technology is I see an insight with technology to be able to deliver more value to society. Mm -hmm. And I'm competing against every other economic actor trying to create more value. Mm -hmm. And if I'm right, people use it, but they wouldn't use it if, 
it drove their prices up. Mm-hmm. Right. Or their value. So in, value. Uh, value. Up, yeah. Right. Value. Mm-hmm. Up, value. Up. So this is happening so fast right now. And a good example would be the, the BlackBerry versus the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And that prediction of what's coming, we don't see because, because we see a system from inside the system. So when we don't have an iPhone, we see the BlackBerry and we always believe that they're going to be a, a monopoly forever because we want buttons on our phone. Mm-hmm. It's easier to type on a phone with buttons and we'll tell everybody that that's why they, and we'll reinforce that belief. And then an entrepreneur comes in and chooses, creates something out of left field that we don't see. And a phone doesn't just become a phone anymore. It becomes a communication device that is also a calculator, a camera, a a, a guitar tuner. Um, It becomes everything, an AI assistant. It becomes everything overnight and it can become cheaper. Mm -hmm. And that abundance also created no more calculator companies, no more, <laughs> no more flashlight going. A whole bunch. Think of what it did to the cam. Think what it does is done to the camera industry. You know, I mean, everybody carried around an SLR, and they're going, yeah. There's a few of those now, but they're not. They're not even being used to be carried around. You know. The- and so, what did we get? Get now carry that forward because it's really important. That's one tiny aspect yes. of the phone, right? One tiny aspect. Do you take more photos today or less photos? Oh, thousands more, of course. Right. And, and now editing software is all free and in your hands, mm-hmm. uh, completely free. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because as abundance goes up, as technology creates a more abundance, the ability to price abundance is uh, falls. So, so and, the, and the best way to look at that, again, going back to first principles is what is abundant in your life? Mm-hmm. The oxygen you breathe. Probably it's probably the most important thing in your life. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't why can't why can't people create economic uh, gain for themselves against that oxygen unless you're underwater mm-hmm. or or on the moon? Mm-hmm. Right, you can only price it where it's scarce. And so what ends up what that ends up having abundance creates price falling as the marginal cost uh, falls to its uh, the marginal cost of production falls to zero. Is it Jeff? When we, you know, this is an interesting conversation that you bring up, and on, and especially on a technology and a deflationary aspect of what. So even even if it in a dollars and cents point of view, you know, let's say it's a hundred bucks, but you're getting so much more for a hundred dollars. So in other words, you know, to your point about the phone, can you imagine not? You, I mean, I, I think that for the most part, the biggest part of this population. It cannot exist without a phone. I mean, in China, you don't live without a phone. You cannot even exist in that world without a phone. I mean, I think most people here start to understand that, you know, the frivolities aside, you know, a handy camera or whatever that might mean. And of course, in some businesses, you need that camera. But the point is, is that from banking to to communication to, un, you know, to being able to have have this conversation, we could have done this on the phone. We're doing it on Zoom and on our laptops or whatever. But I mean, we could have done this literally on our phone. So when we think about the value that we get for that technology, is that still, even though it's priced at a, a certain point, I guess it still is in it's deflationary. I, you know, it's, it is, it is because of all of the industries that it removed to give you that same, right. Great point. So yeah. It, yeah. It remove thousands of industries on yeah. it. And it's look, look at your phone, what it does today yeah. and all of the other things you used to have to pay for. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's why. And so one company capitalizes on that, mm-hmm. but a whole bunch of other companies get destroyed by, uh, by it. And mm-hmm. the overall nature is prices should fall down. Fall down. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason they're not falling 
If you drive liquidity into a system, you drive the monopolies that are creating this at an ever-increasing rate, and nobody else can compete. So you're you're essentially making them the super companies by be, be, by by driving by by manipulating the market, and then prices don't fall like they should fall. So as labor is removed from the market, so a lot of people think the calculator app on your phone is free because it's subsidized by advertising. Mm-hmm. And that's simply not true. It's it's free because there's there's a million entrepreneurs driving lines of code that could be your calculator app, uh, app and the marginal cost to produce that falls to zero. And if, if one of those wins one penny per download of a calculator app, app mm-hmm. um, then they win it all. And, and so the marginal cost of production falls to um, to the cost of production. The cost of production is going to zero with, with technology and artificial intelligence. It's why we can do this podcast that can touch millions of people mm-hmm. um, for free. Yeah. When we look at what's happening that's driving us economically right now, and we, you know, the big topic, right? I mean, in Canada, it's real estate, but it's really, that's a almost a global issue for sure. But when we look at the monetary policies, you know, globally that are happening, and I'm trying to keep it a little bit zoomed in on Canada, because that's primary listeners view and, and who we are speaking to primarily. But when we look at what's happening in Canada, when we look at monetary policy, when we look at the printing, when we look at the deflationary aspect of technology, and the manipulation of dollars and cents, what happens if they stop printing money? What happens if they raise interest rates. I don't believe they will raise interest rates, but that's politics, not policy. You know, so uh, so where do you see? I don't want to say where do you see it going, but why aren't they doing it? Why are they not just going? Okay, quit QE. So I wrote a I wrote an article. And it's on Medium that you can read. It's called The Greatest Game. I'm gonna read that, and I'd love for you to come back when I, when because but because this entire thing, if you understand what's happening, is completely predictable. And what's next is predictable. And what's next after that is predictable. And what's next. you're dealing with two totally different systems. One, the free market is going to reduce prices and the existing market and um, has to increase them or uh, suffer uh, a cascading collapse. Mm-hmm. So, um, and what that will do for society. So let's just go through that, through the options from the existing system. And yeah. let's try not to assign blame to people. Because that's what that's what would typically happen, and that's what's happening in the political circle. And then a whole bunch of people are leaning on left, right, everything else, yeah. unaware of the of, of what's really driving it all. But let's not try to assign blame. So, from a structural point of view, if the debt cannot be paid back, you really have two choices: monetize the debt through inflation. Mm-hmm. Right? You have a money printer. You can keep on printing more money, and and as you create abundance in money, you create scarcity in everything else. So scarcity and money creates abundance everywhere. Abundance and money creates scarcity everywhere. Got it. More money chasing uh, fewer goods, more technology accelerating all, all, all the way. And and what you could see is you could do you could keep printing, and you could essentially buy printing, drive your inflation rate up, and pay back your debt with cheaper currency later. Yes. And but if you couldn't pay it back by taxes, you would have to choose that door. That fair? Mm-hmm. So that's what governments are having to do all over the world. And as they do it, there's a natural cause of what happens to society as a result of that choice. What's door number two? two? You you asked, what would what would happen if they stopped printing? Yeah, what would happen if they stopped printing and what would happen if they increased interest rates? So most people believe that the depression 
was caused by doing that. Mm-hmm. Depression was caused by leverage in a system that couldn't be paid back. Mm-hmm. And so we're in that same uh, point and it's the leverage that can't be paid back. So if you actually stopped printing, the entire thing would collapse. But everything is everything that, and that's actually why I say try to, so now be a policymaker, mm-hmm. be sitting on top of all of this. It's chaos. You have bad choices. One choice, you divide society. And you have to, by dividing society, you actually have to, because you have essentially theft in your base code, you have to control society more and more and more. Not bad people. And you might say, you might say to yourself, you might actually say, we have to do it. Otherwise, those people are going to starve. Mm -hmm. You might convince yourself that only you can do it. And as you do it more and more, you have to remove individual rights and freedoms to do more and more because it's based on a lie. You might look at the other door number two, the cascading collapse, and you could say, this is a greater, this is a better choice than door number two. Let's go back to 2008. Yeah. Um, is, it, is, it, is an informative view on, on that. So in 2008, it, my, my company had, uh, had millions of dollars in the bank, uh, tens of millions of dollars in the bank, lines of credit or letters of credit and containers kind of moving across the ocean from country to country to, uh, to, uh, to support the business. So global trade, global trade. And for a period of three days, nobody, no counterparty bank in any other country would take our money. Yeah. And when, and when I looked at our bank account, no problem. We have all the money, but what they were worried about is the cascading collapse of our bank, not having the money. And that was in 2008, given what was going on underlying with what was happening in the U.S., well, globally, but U.S. primarily driven there. Lehman Brothers collapse effectively said, so the government said, first, we're going to let the free market work and and and, and we're going to collapse. But that cascading collapse of Lehman Brothers collapsing, now every other bank wonders, okay, all of this debt over here that's, that's just gone underwater and the whole system is built on that debt. It just runs up the chain and everything starts to break. But we live in that world that everything's interconnected on that debt. So for a period of three days, literally, our containers were sitting at ports not being able to ship. And I knew before most people knew that TARP would come in and there would be an injection in the in the system to save the system. Right. Now you have to ask yourself again, not bad people, not anything else. Now ask yourself, is it a free market? That's mm-hmm. the question. So, so now you have to bail out the banks because if the banks um, don't survive, nothing, everything unwinds and you start over and everything's built on top of that paper money or that credit uh, money. So you have to bail out the banks and the architects of the crisis through the same leverage end up writing the rules for this saving of the saving of the crisis, right? And they all get rich at taxpayers' expense, and it starts anew. Now you have to ask yourself that that question. So the architects of the crisis won; it's a one-way bet, and they socialized all the losses. What would that do to capitalism as we know it? It would break it, right? Mm-hmm. Shut it down. And the very thing that you that you just created in society, then now everybody's aware that. If I have, if I'm too big to fail, then I have a one-way ticket to socialize losses. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to ask a simple question: Would it create more people doing it or less people doing it? 
And what it creates is more people doing it Mm -hmm. and more people racing to the trough at taxpayers' expense and the system getting further and further away from, from itself. Now, the opposite side of that argument, should they have let it collapse? Mm-hmm. It's to, it, it, like if you think of what your life would look like under that collapse, it might look very different. So, so again, these are really people politicize these messages and everything else. But the truth is, from a first principles, there was no capitalism, there was no free market. If you say you were going to allow a system to fail, um, and you don't, then you encode those rules into capitalism itself, and it gets worse. So we're in a, it's a magnitude worse than it was in 2008. And now the stakes are even, they're so much greater because we're all, we all live, people are levering up to take mortgages on homes and everything else and levering at a way bigger deal than they were in 2008. And, and you're sitting on the same problem. And these systems are moving away faster and faster from each other. What's interesting, Jeff, was what you said, you know, we look to blame, but it really doesn't matter who's kind of at the helm, you know, politically, because they all are left with, in their world, limited choices. Some of it can be literally lacking the insights or knowledge of what the hell do we do here? How do we handle this? They've got this problem. So it's like, you know, even if the government changes out, you know, the government set this whole bunch of plates spinning, you know, the old spinning plate trick where you got to keep, you know, those those sticks moving. And then somebody, a new government comes in and they got the same problem. We got to keep these plates spinning. And so it, it doesn't really ever go away in that context. When we look at what's happening what do you see as a solution? Is there a solution to this problem? Because it's it, there seems to be the inevitability of some sort of collapse. And that doesn't necessarily mean it, it means it's going to get uncomfortable. Could be pretty catastrophic in the short term. But in the long term, is that the fix? So so it's not the fix, uh, unfortunately, from, uh, from that. But the system can't fix the problem. And I spent, uh, you can imagine, 10 years researching this, to, uh, how, um, talking to everybody I can, trying to figure out how it, what is the best fix for this. Mm-hmm. You have two ideas competing for your attention right now. And, they, and they're completely opposing ideas. Mm-hmm. One idea of the system that you live in is an idea that prices have to go up forever. You lever a system. It's all based on somebody controlling how much prices go up and that cascades on itself. Two ideas, the system we live in that requires theft at monetary policy. It requires, we believe that we need inflation for a productive society. There's a massive belief in inflation is required for a productive society and it's not true, but there's a belief. And if that idea persists, then society will, will make that happen and you'll end up concentrating all wealth in very few hands mm-hmm. um, and you'll have centralized control. It'll keep moving more and more centralized and you'll have this divide or you'll have wars to reset the system. Um, and then there's a different idea. And that idea is a free market can work or it's backed by and technology is reducing prices. And what would that and what would that look like if money wasn't manipulated? Mm-hmm. And those two ideas right now are competing. And if enough people believe in a system that removes manipulation from the base layer, so and believes in human action coming together, instead of this group has to control this group, we'll move to the other system. And so the new system is anchored by Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's what's happening. And if you looked at what's happening in Bitcoin, what you could say is it's slowly taking the monetary energy into a new system and it's getting stronger and stronger as it does it. Mm -hmm. And the network is emerging. It's really early, mm -hmm. but that's, what, that, uh, that's what's happening. And it produces what I think it is. It's a bridge from one side to the other side without a complete having to reset the system because the system cannot make the choices. There's nobody in government that could, in any government that would say, hey, elect me, I'm going to stop printing. You, you have no social security, everything, all of, your, all of your funding, hospitals close, everything else. Nobody can make that choice. It cannot, it's, it's, politi it's politically impossible, not only politically impossible, it's impossible for society to go through that. Um, so it won't happen from the system. You know, after reading your book and doing the research that I do and what's going on economically, I can't, I, you know, that, that sense of uneasiness just, it seems, I, I, I have it because there, I don't know the solution and I know that others don't have the solution. So then it becomes a question almost of feeling like, you know, you're into, we're into survival mode and it's like people are running, not running around, but they're like going, what the hell do I do here? And that isn't even the masses, by the way. You know, that is the, let's say the top 10% or arguably the top 30% of the population that has some fundamental understanding of what's going on. I mean, when you look at, you know, the youth, when you look at younger people, you look at your kids, you know, who are blessed because you're a pretty smart dad and pretty up to speed with what's going on in the world. But do you understand what I'm saying with this, this all, Jeff, is that, you know, is like, what the hell do you do, you know? And I, I'm careful of about ideas compete for attention. Mm -hmm. um, it, let's let's take it to a different uh, time and place, mm -hmm. and to, but similar technology. So the church essentially told you how to live, mm -hmm. right? The here's here's how the world works. Here's how going back to the 1600s. Yep. Enter printing press. What did the printing press do? It lowered the cost of uh, technology. Or lowered a technology, it lowered access cost mm -hmm. in two ways. And that two ways allowed people to contribute to the global knowledge pool. Mm -hmm. And some of the contribution was a mismatch to old ideas. And not just contribute, but then gain knowledge and error correct from that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So you added contribution and you gained back knowledge. And, and what ended up happening is the truth. There's probably tons of ideas, tons of books that were just garbage and fell by the wayside. And over time, that truth, people saying, wait, Galileo's idea doesn't match the church and the power from the church to be able to excommunicate Galileo, put him in jail to take back your opinion is a huge power. And what would it look like back then if you on out time and that's happening rather slow rather slowly at the time what would it look like as human knowledge was was moving forward we were error correcting mm -hmm. and we found out things that didn't weren't true it would probably be chaotic yeah. fair to say sure um because because it's an idea fighting against an old idea now fast forward to where we are now you have instead of hundreds of thousands of new minds entering the global collective through the internet, you have billions. And every idea is fighting for attention. And a lot of those ideas are terrible, right? And, and, and the, but the best of those ideas, if they're true, are getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger as more people realize, wait, this idea 
this idea that we live in that we were, were uh, is wrong. And somebody has to disprove the new idea. So again, we wouldn't see that just like we don't see Netflix when we're shopping at Blockbuster. Mm -hmm. We don't see the iPhone when we're using uh, when we're using um, uh, a BlackBerry. Those ideas are always from the outside in and they challenge our beliefs. And so now if you, that's happening at a scale that we can hardly comprehend those ideas, but we're all, our, our learning is on top of those ideas. Society is built on top of those ideas then what might it look like as you're going through a transition from one idea to another idea? And that's what society is going through. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's really painful, but I actually have way more hope because that idea. And, and when I, when I look at Bitcoin, a lot of people will say, it will look at this and kind of think, okay, number go up. They'll see all the nonsense in Bitcoin, everything else. And people trying to get rich, they think it's a get rich quick scheme yeah. and they won't investigate it like they should mm -hmm. because of that. If you actually simply say, what is the idea behind this? An open communication protocol that is decentralized, that costs less, that allows anybody to not have their money stolen mm -hmm. and, nobody can, uh, and nobody can do anything about it, that allows humanity to, to sit on a new rail of fair rules. And what might happen from that new rail of fair rules? I don't think a lot of people haven't kind of looked because we're so early in this. Yeah. What would happen? And it's similar to the internet itself, right? What would happen if you gave society an open communication platform that everybody had to compete on top of that open communication platform to be able to deliver more value to people? Mm -hmm. What you could see is the people that were in control of what it looked like before lost value, became irrelevant, and new, new companies emerged on top of the new communication uh, 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 protocol, mm -hmm. the, the internet. Mm -hmm. And if you cut yourself off from the new communication pool or protocol, like North Korea, did you gain for your citizens or lose for your citizens? Well, you definitely, and especially in, the, in, in North Korea's case, you lose for your citizens, but they don't care. But but again, that's but that's the same thing that I think we're dealing with yeah. in, in Bitcoin. So 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 there's certain nations that are going to cut off Bitcoin and try to. But what are they telling you when they do that? What are they for when they want to cut off an open open network, open decentralized network uh, that you can't steal money on? Mm -hmm. Well, what are they for? They're definitely not for the citizens. They're definitely. But again, even even just saying that. Mm -hmm. You could politicize that conversation. One hundred percent, but it's 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 difficult. I like I basically it's a new conversation. Conceptually, I get the conversation, but how do you do that without politicizing it? How do you look at those that are trying to maintain or gain control? How do you how do you not politicize it? You know, at the and end of the I, day. And what I what I realized is is this, and this is uh, so any system that could be manipulated for some people mm -hmm. at the expense of other people mm -hmm. throughout history mm -hmm. will be, mm -hmm. not might be, will be. When you can control gold and then reprice gold because it has to be centralized, mm -hmm. well, that's what it's saying, right? Sure. Any, any, any system throughout history where you could enrich yourself at the expense of others, any system, not might be, it will be. History history is a good guide of that. And mm -hmm. so so then you have to ask what system 
could produce a, a totally different effect than we've ever seen in humanity? What system could allow that transition to, um, and the only thing I've seen so far is so far, I'm not saying I wouldn't look more, but why I've become a real proponent of Bitcoin is because it's the only system I've seen that actually could, uh, could uh, forever removes that fear, greed, human control of other people mm-hmm. from the system and allows society to flourish. You know, it's, it's interesting is that I started, well, I, I'm going to, I'll qualify it. I <laughs> give my wife credit. She started investing in Bitcoin uh, back, I want to say in 2000 and uh, 10, I think. And, you know, it was very funny because when we had the meltdown, she went, I said, we should be looking at what we've got going on here. And she says, I, I got some Bitcoin, but I don't remember how much. And I don't remember my, my password. And, <laughs> and, and so anyways, long story short, a little funny story in the, in the background. She didn't remember her password, but believe it or not, I was playing and I remembered her password. And only because I had heard this weird password that she said once or twice and it stuck in my brain. And one day I'm sitting there and going, Oh, you're going to love me more because I just opened up your Bitcoin account. (laughs) (laughs) So it was one of those bizarre things, you know, because she didn't even know what, you know, what that seed phrase was. She would never been able to find it. And that's not a criticism. It's just like it was an arbitrary thing that she did uh, with a friend and, uh, you know, and then kind of forgot about it. So that was already in our radar, on our radar and on the path. And then I have conversations like this and I do lots of reading. And here's, you know, what I've learned in, in listening to a lot of very, very smart people that are paying far more attention than I am, is that we used to think about a diversified, when we look at how do we cope in in what's happening in the world today, you know, given what's happening economically and on a global scale and certainly on a national scale. And it used to be that a diversified portfolio was owning 25, 30, 50 stocks, whatever that was. And then we start to understand just what happens with monetary policy and how that impacts, you know, the equity market and, and bond market, all the rest of it. And then we start to realize, no, a diversified portfolio now includes stocks, perhaps definitely in this world today. I think you have to really pay attention to what's going on with Bitcoin. You have to, like you would be doing yourself a disservice not to, whether you believe in precious metals, uh, you know, then of course there's real estate, which is always on top of our list. But at the end of the day, a diversified portfolio, given what's going on economically is really beyond just a bunch of diversified stocks. Uh, That's kind of what I've come, my own personal conclusion around it all, Jeff. Yeah, and I, and I think that's true. And you, But you're looking at it, and as your audience listening to this, will look at it from their point of view. Sure. Their point of view is on top of the financial system that they've had access to because of real estate and everything else. Mm-hmm. And remember, there's somebody else on the bottom of the financial system or in another country that is blocked by that same financial system. And so that, that benefit to uh, that benefit to one part of the population is a, is a subtraction from another part of the population mm-hmm. and is done by the same game. So, and, and I know it's hard to see because it's designed to be hard to see, but it's, um, but it, just imagine a monopoly board okay, because it makes it easier to see and imagine a monopoly board and, and you going around the board with say four friends and the person that lands on the most properties early on has has call it positive luck mm-hmm. right so that luck event with the, that they were lucky enough that they land they rolled the right dice yeah. creates creates an advantage mm-hmm. that advantage gets bigger and bigger and bigger 
and it's a disadvantage to the other people that it's getting smaller. So, and then they start putting houses and hotels on those properties. Sure. Yep. And it becomes a bigger disadvantage. Now, in Monopoly, the game ends, or those four people fight and the game gets kicked over, right? And yeah. you actually think about what's <laughs> happening today in the world is the mm -hmm. game's getting the game board's getting kicked over. Um, but the game ends. Imagine in a world where what the people going around the board over and over and over instead of two hundred dollars, they couldn't get around their food prices went up, their house prices, their rents went up and everything else, and they couldn't get around the board. What would they do? Would they turn to the same government that's creating the problem and say, give me more money? And if the, as, as the government said, okay, I'm going to give you $300 now, and that $300 pushed all the asset prices up and pushed, pushed food prices up, and they could still couldn't get around the board, would they come back and say $400, $500? And so what you see if you have a system designed on complete manipulation that must get worse and worse and worse and divide society as a result, and it feeds back on itself. Now, that doesn't matter where you are in the world. So if, if, we, if, we, if we think, oh, it's good for us, but but in another nation, it's driving that that same thing. What ends up happening, and that's why technology is such a great equalizer, because what technology does and the free market does is is it changes the calculus from and and the monopoly that used to have protection doesn't have protection anymore because the price falls so much on the new system. So it, it just an easy way to see this is the first uh, the first people on Amazon shelves weren't the people on Walmart shelves. Mm -hmm. And what did you do used to do? So you used to go to Walmart and you used to buy everything at Walmart. And the merchants that picked the products, the billions of products in the world, they had to pick 140,000 products out of the billions. So they had to limit choice. And then when you pick their product, because it was the only place to buy it, it sent a signal, told you I'm a really good picker, right? Sure. And, and they, they created the market because they had the market. Enter Amazon because the cost went down so low, Amazon could have unlimited shelf space. All of the people who weren't on uh, in Walmart went on Amazon. Mm -hmm. He chose differently as a result of that. So the true signal was us all the time. It was a manipulated signal that we didn't see because of the control function. And, and that new signal, because of the lower cost, everybody moves to, moves to Amazon and it creates a new mon monopoly. Now, that happens over time and it happens because the reduction in price gives us more choice. Same thing that happened to Google, same thing that happened to, to any technology company. Massive more supply, we have more choice, we, choose, we start choosing different. And we didn't know that choice existed before. It was, on, um, and that changes, uh, changes markets. That's what's happening today if you look at Bitcoin. And from our lens in Canada, we might not see that the entire population around the globe that's completely unbanked, that is locked out in inflationary currencies or Venezuela or, or Turkey or Nigeria, you have corruption caused by some of the same thing in, 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 in currencies, that now you have a peer-to-peer -peer network that gives choice to people. Mm -hmm. And it drops the cost. And as that gets stronger and stronger and stronger all over the globe, it, um, it produces. So yeah, same same reason why Sears goes bankrupt, not being able to see the see the technology that empowered other people mm -hmm. and tries to protect their monopoly. That can happen in, in systems as well. That's what's happening. You know, it's interesting, you know, when we talk about 
you know, the functionality of Bitcoin. People go, well, you can't buy stuff with it. You can't do this. You can't do that. And 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 to some degree, that might be true, or it is true, uh, particularly, let's say, in Canada. But a friend of me, this literally happened to me yesterday, what was an observation, which is uh, a friend who I do business with owed me some money and, and says, hey, listen, you know, I can't transfer to you. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like, it, and we're going, well, it isn't efficient to send the check. Well, why don't we do it really quick? Why don't I just wire you the money? Why don't I just transfer it to you? I got to go to the bank anyways, do some stuff. You know, she went to try and transfer that money and it became such a pain in the ass that she actually, you know, like it was, what's your transit number? What's this? What's your address? What's your phone number? It's like, holy shit. And I was joking. And I said, just pay me in Bitcoin, right? Like transfer it to my wallet. Like totally take out the middleman in terms of the bank, right? We could have done that in that moment. And in hindsight, we would have done that, but we didn't anticipate how much difficulty we would have simply trying to transfer money from one person to another person. It was actually, you know, because we have an understanding of Bitcoin, it was like, holy cow, like this is ridiculous how difficult they make it to move money around. And I don't know if that's in any country, but certainly here in Canada, we see that happening all the time, which is, again, it's a little bit frightening of what's going on in that regard uh, when you talk about monetary control. But, that, but, but then if you think about that friction cost. Yeah. And if you, and, 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 and if you put higher walls for friction costs and you, or, or you say you're going to remove people from a system remove their financial freedom from a system and you put higher walls to access, what do you think will happen with technology? It'll move faster. And that's because it's a peer-to-peer -peer network and it's an open network and there's nothing that can stop, stop it. There, you can, a country can, can slow it down, but it will not, it will not stop. It will not stop that. Uh, um, and if it slows it, if a country slows it down, they actually penalize themselves and their citizens because they're not actually building onto a free market. They're building on to, to, to something else. So, but but again, this is pretty typical. If you see it in companies all the time, why don't they, why doesn't a company like Kodak invent the digital? If they invented the digital camera, why don't they take advantage of it? Mm -hmm. Because the structure of the industry has them reliant on film processing, right? And and the entire entire thing. So they don't see that the new innovation can solve something totally different for people. And so new entrepreneurs seize on that opportunity and people move to where, where the, there's less friction cost. Are things speeding up on both? I'm going to, I don't know, I don't want to categorize it as, you know, on the positive versus the negative, but, you know, I don't know how to categorize it right now. So are things speeding up? You know, we use the, you know, if you use that analogy of, you know, uh, somebody wants, you know, somebody uses the the metaphor or about, you know, if you had the stadium and you, you know, if you had the largest stadium in the world and you sealed it off and you started with one drop of water, how long would it take to fill that stadium with water? The answer is 58 days because it's doubling every time we you know, it's the, it's the grain of rice story. It's the, it's the penny story and doubling and doubling. And, you know, when I look at what's happening with let's say Bitcoin in this example, or are we starting to see that velocity pick up as things double on one side of the equation, but is the system breakdown also happening in the same context? I mean, you use the, you use the, the phrase that, you know, if inevitable, there's an inevitable system collapse, when's it going to happen? And the question is, you know, who's, you know, your, your response has been in the past, you know, 
what's the snow what's the final snowflake that causes the avalanche and you know, we don't have that answer but from my view and that's just my sense of it is that things are really gaining velocity on both sides of the equation do you what's your well, i don't know what's your take on that yeah no so so they're moving away from each other at an accelerated rate and they have to so just imagine two axes one axis the free market wanting to save you time and drive prices down but you can't see it because the other one's driving prices up mm -hmm. and robbing your time. Mm -hmm. But they're getting further and further apart. And then imagine each of the companies that that has to to be able to deliver more value to you because be, because a, a larger part, part, part of the population or their real wages are going down. And so delivered in value to them, you have to remove labor faster to be able to make the, the so you have to drive automation, artificial intelligence, robotics into your business at a, an accelerated rate, which causes the opposite response. You have to manipulate faster to be able to keep it going, going. So you're almost living in a mirage of all prices and all economic signals being manipulated and people think they're safe in the mirage. Right. They think their house is going to be safe. They think that all of their wealth is going to be safe, but it won't be in that in that system over time. I can't tell you which snowflake causes the avalanche mm -hmm. uh, because it can come masking instability in a system. Nature is na nature um, is a system is system dynamic. So if complex systems need failure in systems to be able to stay resilient and masking that resilient masking that to create artificial instability creates more instability. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing. So you're masking essentially, and, and what you should ask yourself is who decides, who point, put a picture on the person that you decide, you decide should have superior control of all economic action and be able to push a button and destroy that much, a whole bunch of your labor, a whole bunch of your time. Just imagine you had one person had a house and that was all of their assets and they had leverage. One person had savings. Both of those economic actors are making predictions on what they think will happen. So one person has a $500,000 house. One person has $500,000 savings. Mm -hmm. Who should decide who gets to push the button that transfers the 500,000 uh, in savings to the other person. And if you believe in a society that, that works that way, Put the face of the person that you want to have that control forever over society. Do you think they might change their mind in time or for your, for your kids? Because that's where we're going. Uh, uh, that's that's what the existing system is based on. So, okay. So that's interesting because the, the question I wanted to ask you goes back to what you're talking about is that as these things start to happen at some level, it's like, okay, well, let's give you money, right? So we we then get into a conversation of, we look at other countries where that's how dictators are born, right? They come in to save the world. And do you think Canada is at risk of that happening? Do you think a country like Canada could have something like that actually happen? So, and again, this is going to sound like, then I don't want to get political. I'm not trying to, and I'm actually trying to avoid getting political. I'm asking the question though, is, is because I'm not looking at our current government, by the way, I don't want to consider it. Yes. So that creeping power, that creeping control function. Yeah that people don't see yeah. is a function of manipulated money and it has to happen no matter where no matter where in the world mm. if you look at if you look at the rise of hitler mm -hmm. it, it was it was the same thing it's yeah. a creeping control function that people vote for yeah. because because they're scared and because they need money yeah and it's a creeping control function that 
absolutely it has to happen mathematically it happens mm-hmm. and and so so civil rights and freedoms are have to move to the state to be able to protect the the ability to to con- control money mm-hmm. when you think about uh you know this transition of going into the transition or the the growth of blockchain the growth of bitcoin i don't know do you are you familiar with Catherine austin phipps I'm not. Okay. Uh, then I won't bring it up, but she was definitely in, in the U.S. Senate, and I, uh, and I don't remember what her position was. But, you know, she's looking at it going, it's a very, you know, blockchain, she's she's totally for it, but she's saying it's still a risk because of, you know, the central bank digital currencies, which she sees where the direction is going. She thinks that that is ultimately going to be it. And in the, in the phrase, and this sounds a little conspiracy, and I know I, I'm tr- like you, I, I want to avoid it, but, you know, it's not, it's pretty public knowledge now which is you know you will own nothing and when she looks at it she goes that actually will include bitcoin that's where she sees it going and and they will think of a way or they'll figure out a way to even block that uh, you'll own nothing and be happy and and she says that will include that now that's her view it's a very educated view and she's, you know, she's been in it for years um, and lots of stories around it. So any, any thoughts on that, Jeff? Imagine there's two ideas. So my, my idea, so free market ideas, yep. right? what, what we'd say in, in, in the idea always comes from outside uh, a market. Mm-hmm. And because there's so many of us, there's billions of us mm-hmm. all testing against. But what if the idea came from inside? So what if, what if the WAF knew the same thing I knew, mm-hmm. the technology was accelerating mm-hmm. and that technology was going to take a whole bunch of jobs and that, and, and that we could create a control function to be able to, to, and whether you kind of forget the fact that that control function forever put some power in some people's hands and took it from other people's hands. Imagine the other side of that, not being able to see all the, the option opportunities and say, and, and imagine this is what's going to happen to society. And us smart people need to tell all those dumb people what to do. And the only reason we're smart, the only reason we are at the top of the ladder is because we controlled money in the first place to get to the top of the ladder. Right. And what would happen in a society where, where you created kind of a super elite that was the power, were the power brokers to everything else, and you shut down dissent? No, it almost doesn't matter anyways, because ideas, the free market will win in the end. Ideas are powerful. Right. And, and if you think about any centralized system, a centralized system decays because it loses the free thought. Those ideas, that's why I use the iPhone example. The system doesn't come up with it. It always comes up from outside of the system. And all of humanity lives on top of those, those ideas, right? The best ideas. And think about all of the people that those ideas challenged the status quo. They were all outliers mm-hmm. to the status quo. So the free market will take us there anyways, and, but it might be a long time and this, and the existing system is going to thrash around for control. All sorts of things are going to happen. People are going to, but, but over the long term, that's actually, and that's actually why when I look at Bitcoin, it's a decentralized system that puts nobody in control and there's no throat to choke. People are, and so if enough people believe in that system, all systems are just a belief set of people. If enough people believe in that system, 
it'll win the day. If enough people don't, it won't. It's interesting, a couple things, Jeff, and I and I got a couple different points I want to get to. But when we look at the system, so where, where do we go? Let me go back to this. You know, you said something that was really interesting and that, you know, within the system. So have adopted a phrase that I learned many years ago, which is high performance is a result of low tolerances. And we have us and you said it very clearly is that we have a system that they're they're actually it. When something breaks and they fix it, it should be more robust, but they're not really fixing it. They're, to your point, they're just putting masking tape on it. You know, they're using haywire and, and you know, duct tape. And, and the system is, is starting to collapse because, of course, under the weight of what it is that it's expected to deliver. That's a fundamental problem that it's, you know, that whole concept is that, you know, you can take a Ford Focus and it doesn't matter who the driver is. If they drive the shit out of that car because of the tolerances or lack of tolerances, it's going to blow apart. It's going to explode because if you put a professional driver in there, you're going to drive the wheels right off it. Then you look at, let's say, a Porsche, next level tolerances. Yeah, you can go 300 kilometers an hour. Then you get into a supercar. And of course, the tolerances are even tighter. The performance is even higher. But all nothing there is duct taped, haywired, or you know, masking tape over top of it. So that's a context for what I see and is happening in the world of blockchain. And in this case, and we could talk all sorts of things about blockchain and, and Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies, but let's talk about Bitcoin. Is that system has in fact proven itself to be pretty bulletproof? Not pretty bulletproof. It's never been hacked. It's, it, ha it's never been hacked and it's never broken down. It can, and can you imagine how much, can you imagine the psyops? Can you imagine the amount of people that have tried to kill it? Oh, can you, like oh, off, the charts. off the charts, off the charts, off the charts. Yeah. And it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, almost every everything you hear in the news trying to kill it. Kind of all the fud and everything else trying to kill it. Whether mm -hmm. it's whether it uses too much energy, which is, again, a truth. Fighting a lie, yeah, totally. Um, is is it, 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 what ends up happening is it makes it stronger, mm -hmm. and it drives more attention, and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And every single network participant, is, and those network participants are us. They're each individual person. I like to think that in a in a system that has fair rules, the best in humanity thrives. In a system with broken rules. The worst in humanity thrives because uh, because it's just an incentive system. So now, in an incentive system that my energy—if I put energy into let's 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 use—it doesn't actually matter if you hate people in Bitcoin. Doesn't matter at all. Every single one of them is helping the network, just like the internet and all of the tests against the internet drove society forward, and the winners created the most value. The difference on um, the, the, the difference on Bitcoin is the winners create more value, but the output of their value is our choice, and the output of that value brings prices down mm -hmm. forever, forever. So, in other words, you could hate Bitcoin, and it will help you. Mm -hmm. That's what and and, and, and that's what happened because the, because it forces the market functions from from a system of poor incentives that that rely on theft to a system of good incentives. And I think that that change that we can't see yet, a lot of people can't see it because they're inside a different system, looking at through a news cycle of what Bitcoin is. And there's a lot of nonsense in Bitcoin too. But I I don't think they can see the how 
deeply profound what I just said is because it actually changes all incentives. And, and then, and then what ends up happening is if somebody owns a whole bunch of Bitcoin, they don't have any more say in that network. They have to provide value to other people to be able to gain Bitcoin. And if they don't, um, if they don't provide value, let's say I want to create, I want to say I'm rich and powerful on Bitcoin and I want to hire a whole bunch of people to convince the world how rich and powerful I am and control them. What am I doing? I'm distributing my Bitcoin. Yeah, totally. Right. (laughs) And so, and, and so what you see and what you see in the trends on Bitcoin is it's constantly getting more distributed. And it's getting more distributed society. And that's a super powerful idea. It's a super powerful idea that changes the incentives of the world from, from competition to cooperation. Yeah, it's an interesting journey that we're on in that world. And, you know, it's, but you do have to step outside of what's going on. You actually have to step back from an old narrative, an old story, uh, a, a way of being that we have to, in parallel, be able to see kind of the future, look at what's happening today and, and then make choices from that. And I, th- and I think that's a very difficult thing to do for many people. Yeah. And, and, and so why is that a hard thing to do? And why is, and, and like, why do we react to what other people say? Well, I think that the, that goes back to the camps that we create, the belief systems that we have, the filters that we see the world through, what we listen to and what we accept. Like if I sat here, so if, let's put it this way, Jeff, I've been following you for a couple of years at least. So it's taken me, a, I don't want to say a long time. It's, it is a difficult conversation for me to even understand, although I've spent hundreds of hours at it and I'm, I look at it and I'm going... That's because part of what how I make my living in the business I operate is to do that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm and, and it's like you know if you're working nine to five with five kids or three kids or two kids and all the rest of it that's going on is like how do you do the research? How do you go through the learning phase of all of it? And I think that's also part of the problem. It's easier just to listen to your neighbor go, oh, "Bitcoin's bullshit." Okay, well forever Bitcoin's bullshit. Yeah, or or if somebody, so why does somebody react? So so if somebody reacts, somebody says something bad about you on Twitter or something, why do you actually react? And it's an interesting question because mm-hmm. the reaction isn't what they say. The reaction is what you interpret that to mean about you. Mm-hmm. And and so it's our feelings of what you're saying that, that make us mad. It has nothing to do with what somebody said, because it, if you compartmentalize what that is, it's just really, they said something and that I, that what they said allows you to learn and take you to a higher level. So I take action. I take learning out of that. Mm-hmm. It's nonsense. And why would you reply to nonsense? Mm-hmm. Unless you're, unless you want to spend some time trying to, if it's truly a valid question, right? then you might want to spend some time or they're an asshole. Yeah. Right. But whatever that is, it's nothing about you, but it makes you feel, and it makes you drive into, to attack somebody else because of the feeling that you're attaching sure. to, yeah. to that it has nothing to do what they say. So it is. So, so when I think about that in, and even in Bitcoin in this, I try to stay now you can imagine in, in chaotic systems, you have a system going through motions that are going to collapse and going to create a whole bunch of pain for a lot of people. And people will drive into another system and it'll create camps on, on both sides. But I just try to stay above the noise 
knowing that that's what it's just you have two different <laughs> ideas dude i don't i don't know how you manage that i got i i think that i'm pretty good at it most times and and within a close circle of friends i can get pretty fired up but you know i don't take it out into you know the this you know the bigger picture of things uh but you're very good at it and and good for you for evolving to that place but i think that's what it takes to actually share a message and to give people some insights into what's happening in the world today so let me ask, you know, as we kind of wind down here, Jeff, and I really appreciate the time you've shared. When you look into the future, I know that you have a picture of optimism, but where does it live? Where does your optimism for the future live? Understanding that we're going to have, just accepting the fact that we're going to have to go through probably a lot of pain to get to where we're going. How do you, how do you contextualize the future when you look at it and go, you know, this is going to hurt? Like, what is it for you? I see the best in people. I see the, so, so I don't agree. There, there isn't one person that I know that I agree with uh, on every single issue. Mm. And I still love them. Mm. Right? They're, they're like there's people that I totally disagree with on a certain issue and they're my best friends. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that disagreement makes us stronger. Right. If it's, if it, if it's, if it's true disagreement to be able to get to a better, better place. And if I don't agree with them, they're still welcome to have whatever view of their uh, world, mm-hmm. um, as long as it doesn't hurt mine. Mm-hmm. And but but again, I can be I can have a whole bunch of friends that I can love completely, and still disagree with them, and they can disagree or agree with me. And so what I see in that is human beings. We wouldn't have survived this long if we were manipulative fear-mongering uh, we there would be no cooperation our species would have died out a long time ago so uh, there is that we are two two wolves you've heard of that yes right? yeah which one do you feed um it gets it gets stronger but most of humanity lives in hope love uh for a better future they might not see what i see mm-hmm. they might not say they might be super confused in the system breakdown but most people are really kind. Um, I traveled all extensively all around the world. And what I see is when you get out of the political nonsense and you actually meet people from the poorest countries around, most people are really great people here. Mm-hmm. That's what I see. Mm-hmm. And so if you, have a, if you have a system that allows the best in people to thrive, humanity moves to a, to a better, we, we move on that learning to a high, to a higher level. That's, that's what gives me hope. So, you know, that you shared a story, um, in your book and it was a friend and I can't remember where he was from. I think he might've worked with you at build direct, but he came from a country that Alex. Mochvik. Yeah, yeah. Alex, can you share that story? Because to me, it was a really powerful story and, and it just spoke to how quickly things can change. Yeah. So, so, uh, and he, from, uh, from Bosnia. Yeah. Um, and, and he grew up with childhood friends that they were all different religions. No, everybody loved it. It was great. And, and he saw this change and he saw, he, he saw essentially neighbors against neighbors, similar thing from a power control structure and what that did to society. And, um, and he got trapped on one side of the border and his family was on the other side of the border and, and almost lost his life kind of uh, fleeing, fleeing that country. And I wrote about that kind of before we see what we're seeing today in the market. 
I, I wrote about that. That was two and a half years ago. Well, I'm reading as I reread your book for about the third freaking time. By the way, uh, is is that I'm looking at you wrote that book what two years, three years ago, three years ago. Yeah, three years ago. Three years ago when it was released, I'm looking at it going. This is all. A lot of this is starting to manifest exactly how you wrote the book and the things that you pointed out in it. And and some people, when I wrote the book, um, and I, that chapter is called "Us Versus Them," yes. and I asked, and and uh, and people, why am I writing that into a book about economics? And because it's a predictable consequence of economics, mm-hmm. and and it, and it, it's all predictable. And now, because we don't we don't want to divide people. But we do when 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 some underlying system is broken, and we're used as pawns in that system. And so, what's happening to society is, unfortunately, I wish that that wasn't the case. But that's also why I wrote the book to hopefully give people people an ability to see what was happening. We don't have to make those choices. It becomes a survival mode, doesn't it? You know, when it when it gets to that degree. I mean, when you look at the extreme of Bosnia, it really is about survival, and that division becomes about how do I survive and doing the best you can in that world. And and people can tell them all sorts of lies themselves. You you mentioned a beautiful thing you just said, Patrick. Prior is it was hard for me because most of my wealth and my business is created from a different system. And that's a really hard thing to say, okay, and you could say, I'll just keep doing it for a little while. Uh, I'll just keep doing it a little bit more. It's okay. It's okay. Cause when I have enough money, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll tell everybody the right thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a whole bunch of money with people right now that are in a system that are looking for more and more government handouts. hundred percent. Right? will not do the right thing because they, they're, they're, they would risk the government handout. So there, so we have an ability, we have a really in, interesting ability to be hypocritical in our own actions versus the actions of others and what we'll do and not speak up for the truth. It's powerful. I wish it wasn't so powerful, but it, but it is. Otherwise, otherwise systems wouldn't get away on themselves like this. So to that point, and as we kind of, you know, bring this down for a landing, because this is such a big conversation, you know, you have... But you have a personal mission. I mean, you have been driven to share insights, educate people. That's my impression of it. Like, do you have a very specific mission in mind, Jeff, with all, I mean, you don't say no to speaking gigs. You just show up. You just keep sharing the message. Is is that a part of your personal mission? Yeah. So I, I've made it, um, an ex- extreme amount of wealth in my life, mm-hmm. but wealth not defined like most people would define wealth. If I look at every aspect of my life, from my family, friends, to to what I have, I cannot believe what I have. It's from a feeling of total abundance of what my connections... And actually writing the book, which I thought would be a real negative for everything I did, became a positive and my learning rate went up and I connected to other beautiful people. We wouldn't have met if I didn't write the, the book. So, so you, you meet so many other people that, that, and, and you learn more. So I cannot believe I get to do what I get to do. Mm-hmm. I do it, this, I do for free because I get to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I have to be careful because it takes time from other things and I could easily lose myself and, oh, it has to be about me. It's not about me. It's not about me at all. It's a, it's about, here's an idea. Look at the idea. If mm-hmm. you don't like the idea, uh, you choose differently. But it's a big idea. 
Um, and so, so I find it, I, I find the whole thing fascinating. I, I, I can't believe I get to do what I get to do and, uh, I don't need to make any money at it. Mm-hmm. I love that. So I'm going to ask you one more question. I, I, I can't not step over it. I've been meaning to ask it and I keep getting, <laughs> we keep going down another path. Not your fault. My fault. The- <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I, I, I also, every, if you watch my podcast, I ramble all over the place and sometimes get back to the point. <laughs> so, so the, the question I have around, uh, one thing that I seems to me that most are stepping over and I think it's going to have a huge impact you know, in all the research that I've done, and it gets talked about a little, but not a lot, given the the scope of it. And that is that between, and that is 5G and the concept of 5G. And, you know, Canada will use Canada, but it doesn't matter. You can go anywhere, but let's just talk about 5G. Rogers, TELUS, um, Bell, between the, those three just alone, and then add to that federal government, provincial government, literally billions of dollars has been spent on 5G. Most people think that 5G is just about a faster internet connection, better cell service, and although that's part of it, it's much bigger than that. Now, it seems like nobody's talking about 5G, really, in my world anyways. And I mean, probably in the 5G world, everybody's talking about it because that's their primary focus. But when it comes to technology and when it comes to the future of technology, I think what isn't being talked about is how impactful that whole concept of 5G is going to be. Now, am I going down a, a rabbit hole here in, 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 in this conversation when I look at when we talk about blockchain, when we talk about uh, the deflationary impact of technology? Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Jeff? So 5G is just one of many accelerants to everything else mm. so all these are accelerating on top of each other uh, other whether it's satellite communications whether it's elon musk's network yep. whether it's whether it's solar whether it's decentralized energy whether it's artificial intelligence on top of that all of these innovations are coming together and driving the acceleration of all the others mm-hmm. faster and faster faster and faster and so that's what people don't see it's not one of them it's all of them Robotics, right. all of the, and, and it just, and, and the space that it opens up for further, further, further progress. It, if you just think about what technology is, it's both at its core, it's the thing that is, is really our idea in our brain. It's just an idea and it's amplification of it as well. So it's our learning yep. to be able to do things better, sure. put into a product. Or an, or an extension, and it's the amplification of that lear, uh, learning as well. And so that 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 idea that what technology is is the sum total of all of us growing faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, and faster feeding back on itself, and is driving everything into kind of that. When they talk about the singularity, to where machines are smarter than us, it's the amplification to that point where machines are smarter than us and everything. Mm-hmm. Jeff Booth, thank you so much for your time. You know, I usually have a some rapid fire questions, but uh, we've talked a lot about different things. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and book you for another time, and we're gonna go into a different conversation. I want to know more about Jeff Booth. Uh, you know, you've got a very very interesting 
uh, view of life, view of what's happening in the world. Uh, I, that doesn't come, you know, naturally. I mean, I know there's work that you've been doing in the background for sure, whatever that might be in terms of your own development. Uh, that comes from reflection. That becomes from getting knocked down a lot. Okay, well, that too, right? And I'd love to hear those stories. Uh, you know, I, I just so appreciate the values that you're sharing today with the audience, and uh, really appreciate your time. The one question I do ask always is, uh, "What are you grateful for today?" Yeah, I, there's too many things, right? There's too many. My family, friends. If if, if I had to go. The least about money, most about my relationships. That's such an important lesson for everybody if they could grasp that concept about just how, you know, it isn't dollars and cents. That's great. It's awesome. We all want to have dollars and cents. But at the end of the day, uh, when it comes to our family, when it comes to our relationships, For those of us who've been on this earth a little while longer, got knocked down, picked up, uh, maybe that's where that appreciation, that gratitude really is born and uh, and really understood at a a cellular level. So, uh, Jeff, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.